0: Welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets.
1: As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia.
0: This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I am the global head of strategy here at Credit Sites. And today we are following up on a podcast that we did recently on GLP1s and healthcare. We're taking a little bit of a pivot and we're going to talk about these weight loss drugs within the context of the consumer space as people are all jazzed up on the potential demise of snacking because, you know, mostly Americans are going to get in shape and not necessarily need so many hostess cupcakes, which are my personal favorites. Joining me today, I have Miriam Ali and Jim Dunn, who cover consumer sectors. Miriam, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, thanks, Winnie. Um, I'm Mariam Ali. I'm the Senior Consumer Goods Analyst based in London. So my coverage is quite similar to Jim's in that a lot of the IG credits are large global multinational companies, but I generally cover the ones that are domiciled in Europe. So on the IG side, my coverage spans the brewers, spirits companies, European-based Coca-Cola bottlers, um, and there's also some coffee exposure via Nestle and JDE Peets. I also cover a few companies on both the IG and high-yield side. So overall, I would say that my coverage includes a range of food and bed subsegments, which could mean different levels of impacts from GLP-1s. Great, thanks. And Jim, how about you?
1: Yeah, thanks, Winnie, for having me. I cover names up and down the rating spectrum. In the U.S., it includes the food manufacturers, and that's the snack companies, and the shelf-stable food names that have been in a lot of the headlines. And then also, uh, within our coverage, are tangential names that might also be included in the conversation, including beverage companies, fast food restaurants, um, and some alcoholic beverage names.
0: Awesome. All of my favorite things. I never got to cover sectors that were interesting. I was always on healthcare or energy, so I'm a little bit jealous of your coverage. I'm going to start with you, Jim. So from snack foods to food retailers to packaging companies, markets have really been punishing equity valuations especially, anticipating that a rise in GLP-1's means it's the end of snacking. Jim, can you give us an overview of the actual impact that these weight loss drugs have had on food and beverage so far for your sector? And are companies actually seeing early signs of a real sea change in demand?
1: The short answer is no. To date, there's been very minimal impact. And I believe it's just This might be a common theme for a lot of our discussion today. It's very early in the process and most management teams have been very reluctant to call out any impact, even if they have seen one. But in results, as far as we're looking at numbers, we haven't been able uh, to observe uh, any meaningful impact as we see in equity markets. So a lot of valuations move uh, on the expectation of what's going to happen down the road. The message has been largely downplayed by management companies to date. But when you look at the actual numbers, uh, we've yet to see anything substantial.
0: All right. And Miriam, how about for the companies that you cover? Are you hearing kind of a similarly sanguine view?
2: Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, So inevitably, GLP-1s were a recurring topic during the recent third quarter earnings. But not every company commented on it. But from the companies that I do, they cover, and from those management teams that have said something like Jim, they have all said that they have not yet seen any impact. Um, from my side, I would say it's definitely been more of an equity story. We have seen a little bit of weakness in some shares as discussion around this topic has ramped. And I also do feel like it's definitely more of a U.S. story at the moment rather than European. Not to say that it won't become more of a topic here, but I think so far the focus has been more on what it could mean for the U.S. consumers. And so naturally those companies with larger exposure to the U.S. have been under the microscope more than others. So in my coverage, that includes names like Nestle, Danone um, and ABN InBev. Who all had sizable U.S. businesses? So,
0: Miriam, if the impact so far has been pretty much non-existent, are management teams talking about their future expectations? You know, guiding for views uh, in, on 2024 or, or even beyond that?
2: Um, I think unsurprisingly, actually, management teams have been very reluctant to provide any sort of guidance or forecast as to what it might mean for their top lines. And I think that stems from the fact that it's still very early days. And I don't think the companies themselves can really fully assess the impact for the long term since there are so many uncertainties The biggest of which is probably how many consumers are actually going to be using such weight loss drugs, especially given that there are supposedly some unpleasant side effects um, and also given the costs involved. I know Eric in the healthcare podcast mentioned that adherence to long-term drugs is actually only around 50% beyond the first year and maybe even lower for weight loss drugs. So given that level of uncertainty, I don't think it's that surprising that there hasn't been much forecasting from names here in Europe. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Feels a a bit like a moving target. Jim, how about some of your companies? Are they willing to provide guidance on the topic?
1: No, nothing in terms of... financial impacts. And if management teams uh, have conceded in any instances of there being potential long-term impacts, they've taken the opportunity to highlight their ability to adapt uh, in terms of catering to more occasion-based eating or consumer demands as they evolve. And to their credit, food companies have faced consumption challenges in a variety of forms over the last decade. And there have been successful examples of those companies uh, adapting and um and and it's going to depend very much on the portfolio and also the geographic exposure I think but um in terms of modeling out potential impacts internally nothing from the company level in fact it's sort of been you know it's been downplayed to this to the extent so far so um there's been no management team that's put out any sort of forecast for long-term impact
0: So even though we haven't seen management teams getting particularly worried about the topic, it does seem like the market is worried. So how do valuations kind of differ from what companies are messaging so far? Jim, are there companies in your sector that have seen a big hit in valuations? Is this an equity story or should you think that credit investors be concerned or are they concerned?
1: Yeah, I think the immediate attention was brought to snack companies, Um, as you think about indulgences throughout the day and various buckets of food that might be characterized as junk food, not by management teams, but by consumers and and, and the press. Those companies have historically traded at higher multiples than more center of the food or shelf-stable meal-based occasion food companies. And that's been because they're typically higher margin and higher growth than other categories. And you see that in acquisition multiples as well as trading multiples. And they drew um, attention first. And maybe there's been a little bit of pushback in terms of valuations. But I I think there was a little bit of a a snap reaction early on and it settled out a bit. Plus, also, there's some larger driving factors in valuations in terms of what's going on with the market broadly. So it's tough to get a clear sense of it in this turbulent market, but the attention has certainly been towards snack companies initially. So you take, for example, uh, JM Smucker uh, is in the process of acquiring hostess brands. And so that got a lot of play in the press, but nothing that we've seen uh, played out in results to impact the valuations thus far, but it's certainly been where the focus has been. And it's interesting for the sector broadly because it's been a strategic shift in the space to go towards those categories um, because of how consumption trends have gravitated towards that type of product. so maybe we've seen, uh, could see a little bit of convergence in multiples between those snacking companies, but there are other factors to consider. So you take, for example, a name like Mondelez, which is the poster child of sort of high value, high, high multiples, uh, high margin snacking company, and they benefit from large non-US exposure. So when you consider the fact that a lot of these companies also have exposure to non-developed markets, emerging markets, which are higher growth, lower obesity, um, less affluent markets with less access to these drugs. It's a bit of a balance to what we're expecting in the U.S. or other developed markets.
0: That makes a lot of sense. There's always that kind of pile on when we see these headlines initially. Miriam, how about the companies that you cover? Have there been any names that you've seen come under outsized pressure?
2: Um, Yes, I would say so far it's not really something that credit investors I've spoken to are overly concerned about. At this early stage, though, I would say that the food companies are probably more exposed than the beverage companies. Just at a basic level, these weight loss drugs suppress appetite. So naturally, you'd expect consumers would cut back on food before they cut back on drinks. That being said, the food companies in recent years have been very focused on the health agenda for their portfolios, which could help limit the negative impact. Um, So on the positive side, for example, I would highlight Danone's food portfolio as perhaps being a bit more insulated than others, since its product categories are water, specialized nutrition and dairy and plant-based products. And on the latter specifically, there's been a lot of focus on increasing the protein content and that kind of product certainly has a spot in a health-conscious diet. So the idea being if consumers are more concerned about their weight, they may naturally gravitate to more healthy products. Benefiting those companies with healthier portfolios. Other companies, though, might have a bit more to do. Um, so, for example, Nestle has started disclosing a health star rating score. Um, and based on that, around 35% of its portfolio is described as unhealthy, which is probably down to all the Kit Kat itself. But that part of the portfolio would certainly be most at risk if consumers were to cut back on food consumption as a result of these drugs. But at the same time, I think consumers do still want choice, and I don't think the food companies would want to get rid of their so-called unhealthier products altogether, because there is room for indulgence and treats in a healthy lifestyle. After all, Nestle recently just bought a premium chocolate company in Brazil, so clearly it still sees a future in that category, um, at least in emerging markets, which goes back to what Jim was saying. Then you've got a company like Unilever, which has uh, nutrition and indulgence ice cream businesses, but the risk is balanced out there by its personal home care and beauty brands. So clearly and obviously those companies that are more diversified are going to be less at risk. On the beverages side, I think the companies may be better equipped to deal with any fallout just because low sugar and low calorie drinks are well established and have been on the menu for many years now. For the Coca-Cola bottlers, Zero and Light options have consistently been outpacing full fat Coke and consistently growing market share in Europe. Then you've got AB & Bev, um, the world's largest beer company, where management has highlighted that its product offering contains low calorie and low no alcohol options, which cater to health conscious consumers. Um, So I think overall, the beverage companies on the whole might have potentially less to fear from these weight loss drugs. Um, But interestingly, though, Nestle did mention some anecdotal evidence suggesting that consumers on these drugs might have less of a taste for coffee, Um, obviously very early days, and that's somewhat balanced out by the fact that coffee can be a very low calorie drink before any added sugar and cream, of course, and coffee itself is unlikely to be a major driver of weight gain. So, I mean, if there is a, a future that does not involve chocolate and
0: coffee, count me out. I'm not. I'm not going to be involved in that particular future. So, I'm interested, Miriam. You kind of alluded to this, but there are some companies that it, it may seem that GLP-1s could be an opportunity. You said Nestle has this kind of strategy around premium and healthy nutrition product lines. Do you think that Nestle is seeing this as an opportunity? Are there other companies that are maybe identifying growth opportunities, targeting these GLP-1 users who might need to focus on, you know, getting nutrition?
2: Um, Yes, actually, Nestle had a pre-prepared section on GLP-1s in its most recent earnings call. And clearly, management there has already done a lot of research into the topic already. So specifically, Nestle has said that it is developing a number of companion products in order to address the risk of malnutrition and loss of lean muscle while taking weight loss drugs. And it's also looking into products which could help limit weight gain once off the drugs, so actually, that presents another indirect opportunity if actually consumers don't stay on the drug for the long haul. So at a broader level, something my companies are always talking about, and I'm sure Jim hears the same from his coverage, is innovation and premiumization. So premiumization is the number one consumer mega trend, I would say, which is informing a lot of corporate activity, be it organic or inorganic. And GLP ones are potentially opening up the whole food and bev industry to a whole new range of premium and innovative products. For Nessay specifically, it already has a health science segment, so there is a natural home for these products. And as I already mentioned, the food and bev companies have already been trying to up their health credentials. So if anything, this may fast track rather than change innovation plans. Um, So if I had to sum it up for my coverage um, at the moment, in my view, while there might eventually be a slight volume impact in certain markets, starting with the U.S., if, and it's a big if, if the use of the drugs becomes more prevalent, it might actually present an attractive opportunity for companies' premium and healthy nutrition agenda. That's super
0: helpful, Miriam. How about you, Jim? Are there companies within your space that you think could benefit or have kind of identified new product offerings associated with these GLP-1s?
1: We haven't quite made it to the arena of new product offerings that are going to pair with weight loss drugs. Um, and in terms of opportunities, I don't think it's so much that there's going to be companies that are are poised to benefit as much as there are companies that might be less exposed, which, you know, that might be semantics, but it's my understanding of the effects of the drugs that exist so far really work in an appetite suppressant manner broadly, and not so much so that it's going to shift consumers maybe to healthier products. Maybe it'll just shift them away from indulgent products. So who who might stand to benefit from that is a good question as a result. And I think if dietary habits shift away from snacking, then there are meal occasion companies that might benefit. And it's an interesting reversal if that plays out of what we've seen in our coverage. So as I mentioned earlier, there's been a gravitation towards snacking to the benefit of companies like Mondelez or Kellogg. And and then maybe to the detriment of, of some companies like Kraft Heinz, although post pandemic eating habits have sort of altered the fortunes of these companies. Um, But maybe we do see a benefit to companies that are focused on meal occasions specifically um, if consumers shift away from the in-between meal indulgent categories. We'll see. And it's not our expectation of massive disruption for those names that we mentioned so far, but it could be a a curious dynamic. But I do want to reiterate, though, that many of these companies, including the ones that I've mentioned so far as examples that might be impacted, do have large non U.S. and non-developed market exposure, which we expect to remain key sources of growth, even while these headwinds arise.
0: Great. That is super helpful. So that wraps up our discussion on GLP-1s and the consumer. I'm sure that you know probably midway through next year, we will follow up with both of you to see where things have trended as we continue to see you know, a lot of the weight loss space, get into telehealth so that they can help facilitate access to prescriptions for these drugs. If you haven't listened to our podcast on GLP ones and healthcare, I highly recommend you go back and give that a listen. And if you have any follow up questions for me, Jim or Miriam, please feel free to reach out to any of us using the ask an analyst function on our website. We are always happy to help Jim and Miriam. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks, Sweeney. Thanks,
1: Thanks for having us. Credit Sites, disclaimer.
0: All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.